Well, this past Christmas, uh, we got a gift that was a great treasure for us as a family that most recently has begun to put together puzzles um, as a family. We haven't been super consistent with that, but it's been something that we started during COVID, and uh, it's been kind of neat to uh, have it sitting out, just working on it pieces at a time. And uh, the one that we got for Christmas was a portrait of our family that, that we submitted and or someone submitted and, and we have now put it together with the help of um, Amy's sister who was in town this week and, and completed it for us um, because of her love for puzzles. And um, it, it, it got me thinking a lot about uh, what I'd like to and what we've been talking about in relationship to covenants um, because... If you've ever put a puzzle together, you know how frustrating it is when you're missing not one piece, but a whole bunch of pieces. Matter of fact, if you put a puzzle together like me, um, I always start with the border. I think that's the best way to start. And, um, and so you're putting the border pieces together and you're, you're trying to get the structure and the frame of, of the, the puzzle together. And, and obviously you, you run into that, that moment where you realize that you're missing one of the border pieces. So that the border, that the, the, literally the rectangle or square or whatever size the, the puzzle is, doesn't even fit together. It, it, it's somewhat maddening, if, if, if I would say so myself. Um, but then you, you, you find it, it's under the couch, it's under the, uh, the apothecary as we have in our house, a little, a little uh, table there, and, and you, you, you move on. The, the biblical covenants are like these big puzzle pieces that um, we've been trying to understand so that we can understand God's word better. And uh, it, it, it is very much, in my opinion, uh, maddening as a Bible teacher and preacher to not understand the, the aspects of, of, of big theological truths like this for our understanding of the Bible. We can go throughout our lives not really uh, sure exactly as to um, what the covenants might be or how the, the, the totality of Scripture points to Christ. And, and we oftentimes don't take the time to, to sit down and study and understand what that might be. Uh, maybe you're of the majority of many Christians that have yet to study through the book of Revelation. It's this, it's this, uh, this giant elephant that, that you're, you're like, how in the world could I digest this? It, it's so massive, it's so large, what, what in the world, I don't have the time to do such a thing. And yet Revelation is this pinnacle understanding of a book that, that kind of culminates all of what God is doing throughout the Bible. Well, covenants is the same way. It is, it is very much a necessary puzzle piece to understanding God's Word. And I hope and pray that as we've studied through this, that you're beginning to see these pieces fit together. And the piece that we're going to focus on today is the last puzzle piece of the Old Testament in relationship to the covenants, and it's the covenant of David, or the covenant with David, or the Davidic covenant as it's called. Now, just as a review, um, you'll be reminded that, that the, uh, the, the, the main covenants that we've looked at in this study, uh, the reason that I'm doing this is because we landed in Nehemiah chapter 10, where, uh, and we're going to see this um, in a, probably next week, where Nehemiah and the, the people of Israel are renewing the covenant. And for me to give a, a proper understanding of that, and for you to have a proper understanding, I wanted us to, to kind of pause and look at covenants so that we know what they're renewing. And what their purpose in renewing would be. And, and why they would spend such an, an effort and, and a time in doing that. And so we will get to Nehemiah chapter 10 and resume that series. But for now, we're going to look at the biblical covenants, particularly the one of David. Be reminded first of the creation covenant as a review. That God um, uh, made this, this, covenant creation, this covenant with um, Adam at creation. And reestablished with Noah, God making um, this covenant not only with man, but with all of creation. Uh, being a blessing to all that he has made with Adam and then eventually Noah being the representations uh, or the representatives of that covenant. 
that we, we looked at how that covenant was made with Adam and then reestablished after the flood with Noah. We talked about how uh, a covenant is cut or made and then oftentimes also reestablished. And that was made pretty clear for us uh, with Adam and Noah. And then we saw that again with Abraham, as God called Abraham um, to, 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 make a, a, to bless him and to covenant with him. He established this relationship with Abraham to make his name a great name and to give him um, a, a great nation uh, from his family. And ultimately, through Abraham, uh, by the power of God, blessed the whole earth. So we, we kind of saw this zoom out and then a, a zooming in into God covenanting with Abraham particularly. And yet Abraham would still be a representative of a relationship with God as someone who submits to God as, as we think of as a son of God who would represent Yahweh the Lord throughout the nations. And therefore, the nations would be blessed because of the way in which Abraham covenanted with God, lived out the way that God had called him to live. And then, of course, we saw the progression of that into Israel. As uh, Moses is on Mount Sinai, and, and, and again, God makes the covenant not with Moses, but with all of Israel. So much so that we looked at two weeks ago how God actually calls Israel my son as he's trying to, or, or he's leading them in an escape from their bondage in Israel. He tells Pharaoh through the mouth of Moses that Israel is my son. And therefore Israel would be the representation of God's glory and, God, and a relationship and a covenant relationship with God so that Israel would be the nation among all nations to uh, represent the Lord Yahweh, to live as he has called them to live, and therefore also be a blessing to all nations. Moses being a representation of that covenant and a head and representative of it. And now finally we get to the Davidic covenant, which many, I would say, is, is the fifth major covenant, uh, or excuse me, the fourth major covenant. You have the creation, the Abrahamic, the Israel, Israelite, or Sinai covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then finally the new covenant. Well, the Davidic covenant is based upon David. Well, who is David? I'm going to ask a couple questions today that, um, that I will answer. And so the the, the kind of the outline for my sermon today is just a, a, a few questions that we're going to look at. And the first one is, who is David? Who is David? David is probably one of the most familiar Old Testament uh, characters in the Bible. We know him in many different ways as, uh, I know our children know him particularly as the one who killed the what, kids? The giant, Right? The giant, my son raised his hand like, like a good son, right? He's, he's not going to just shout it out. He killed the giant. He killed Goliath the Philistine. And we, we get excited about that because we see uh, uh, even a young boy like David standing up for the honor and the glory of God among the nations. There they are in battle with the Philistines and young David is standing there in defiance against those who are blaspheming the name of the Lord, and in all the strength and power that the Lord had given David, he defeated uh, an insurmountable enemy. We know David as uh, part of the tribe of Judah. Many people don't know that David is connected to the book of Ruth. Because when Ruth and Boaz come together and, and marry and have children, Ruth's uh, son was Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And so Ruth is the great-grandmother of David. And so we see this, this progression of uh, God's people through the life of David as a young man even. When David was a young man and he was fighting for uh, Israel among the Philist fighting against the Philistines, we would say that Israel was in a very precarious situation. Israel had demanded to have a king. They had demanded that they wanted a king, and they wanted a king like the other nations. And so God granted their request, 
and he gave them Saul. And Saul was a, was a, uh, was a disobedient king. He was a, a dishonorable king to the Lord. And ultimately, the Lord stripped him of his royalty and his uh, leadership. And we understand that in the midst of Saul's reign, if you kind of back up from Moses and the people in the wilderness, we know that, that as Israel was to be a, a beacon of God's glory in, among the nations to proclaim and live as he's called them to live, instead of doing those things, they actually uh, were, were very sinful. And they lived in a wandering state uh, through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, and they oftentimes were, were, were found to be grumbling and complaining, to be falling into idolatry. If we look through the book of Judges, we see uh, these leaders that God begins to appoint for the nation of Israel. Even these leaders are often uh, disobedient leaders of Israel. And it kind of all culminates with Saul as the first king of Israel, the true king, the, the, the first monarch. And Saul is a, a great example of the disobedience and the need for change in Israel. So it sets the stage for David to come on the scene, a man that would uh, really establish a, a great uh, um, era of prosperity for Israel, and a, and a man who, although he was imperfect and made many mistakes, was a great king and a faithful king that honored the Lord in many ways. And what David, what the Lord does through David is kind of the purpose of the covenant. So, we, we see that um, we kind of have an understanding of, of who David is. But as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to look at the way in which God establishes his covenant with David and the reason which he does those things. So the first question was, who is David? We kind of have this understanding. He is the, young, uh, the youngest son of Jesse. We also understand him to be the, uh, from the tribe of Judah. He slayed uh, the, the, the giant Goliath. He was also known for military exploits beyond that, so much so that his success on the battlefield is what allowed him to rise in prominence to eventually become king, which the Lord was obviously giving him the prosperity and the blessing to do such a thing. And so the next question that I want to ask is, well, who is king? And even David, as the anointed king of Israel now in, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, we have to ask the question, well, who is truly king even as David sits on the throne? And we start with 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it reads this. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, Nathan had this, or excuse me, David had this idea with this summary statement that we read in chapter 1, that as the Lord had finally blessed them, they had settled in Canaan, starting with the exploits and the work of Joshua all the way through David, David had finally defeated the enemies that dwelt in Canaan, the promised land. Matter of fact, we get this summary verse in verse 1, that the Lord had given rest from all his surrounding enemies. So, we see then that God had uh, fulfilled his promises that he had made with Abraham, that he was going to give them a land. Well, now these enemies are completely subdued under the reign of David, the monarch, the king. And so David, as king, wants to honor the Lord. We know that through the history of Israel, as God began to, uh, to covenant with them at Mount Sinai, that he then begins to instruct them as to how he might meet with them. And the way in which he chose to meet with them was in the tabernacle. They erected a tent. They had a holy of holies. And that tabernacle would travel with them wherever they would go. They would stop. They would erect a tent. And they would uh, establish this place in which the Lord would meet with the people. The priests would go in. God had spe specific details as to how this tabernacle <coughs> excuse me, was to be created. 
and, and the ways in which they would be, he would be worshipped. Well, David then as king, now that they've established themselves in the promised land, he says, I want to build the Lord a house. He says in verse 2, I dwell in a house of cedar as the king, but the ark of God, which is the, the representation of God's presence where the Lord would descend and dwell upon, he says, the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do that is all in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, Nathan, we know, is the prophet that served under King David. And the reason that a prophet would serve under the king of Israel is because it always established the fact that the, the prophet would be the mouthpiece of God for the king. And it would be as if the Lord would speak through the prophet to the king, directing the king as to how he might rule and, and govern. In other words, the existence of the prophet Nathan was just a reminder to the king that he wasn't truly the king, that the Lord was the king. And so as we think about um, this, this first couple verses, Nathan, the prophet, and David agree with this idea that, hey, let's build the Lord a house for him to dwell in. Now, we would think of this as a very noble and honorable request. But, but the Lord Yahweh needs to teach David as king of Israel an important lesson. And that lesson is, you move as I lead you, even as king of Israel. As king of Israel, David had to be reminded that he was not truly king of all, that the Lord was king of all. And that David, his king of Israel, was simply a, a, a servant of the Lord. Matter of fact, if you look in chapter 7, in verses 1 through 3, we are, we are reminded with the word king describing David. But look how the Lord refers to David in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David. It's as, as if the Lord was reminding David in his grand scheme to build the Lord a house, don't forget, David, that you are my servant. And what he begins to, to con, uh, convey through the mouth of Nathan the prophet is this. Look at verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. <coughs> Would you build me a house to dwell in? He says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought you or brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have not been moving about in a tent, uh, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me, built me a house of cedar? Stop right there. Doesn't appear this way from an initial reading, but when you think about the way in which the Lord is speaking to David, I think it's pretty safe to say that the Lord is rebuking David. He's rebuking David because although David's desire was good and noble to honor the Lord, the Lord is saying to David, David, I am the king. If I wanted you to build me a house, if I wanted the judges of Israel to build me a house, I would have asked them to build me a house. I was content in doing what I had been doing, and that is what I have already established. That I will live in a tabernacle, that I will come and appear in a tabernacle and dwell among my people, and until I say any different, that's my desire as the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. And I think this is an important lesson for David and for us. Because in reflecting on these things, we understand and, and, and be, are reminded, even in this situation with David, the true sovereignty of the Lord over all things. I mean, what a great message for the people uh, around our world today, full of fear. Looking to their leaders, as I said earlier. Desiring that there would be some great change and some great rescue and some great hope. 
Isn't it a, a great reminder that, that as we seek to be and do what the Lord has called us to do, that we would learn from David's mistake here and say, Lord, I want to move as you move me. I don't want to just come up with some grand idea and hope that you get on board with it. I want to do as you've commanded me to do, and I want to be patiently waiting for you to move me to the next place or the next thing. And until then, I just need to be faithful to what you've instructed me and your people to do. And I can't think of a more challenging thing for us as the church. Trusting in a sovereign God who rules and reigns all things. Not wanting to go before the Lord in doing things that He has clearly not instructed us or led us to do. Remember that the, the nation of Israel wanting a king for themselves was something that the Lord had promised. It wasn't wrong that Israel wanted a king to rule over them. The Lord had promised Moses that in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Matter of fact, I want you to look at this in Deuteronomy chapter 17. If you'll flip over there, just go to, go to your left, back to the, the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 17. Look at, look at the promise that God made to Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. When you come to the land, he says, that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he, the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may dwell, or that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. And that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So when we think about that, Israel was not sinful in wanting a king because the Lord had promised them that a king would rule over them. But the sin of Israel at that time when Saul was appointed king was that they wanted a king like the other nations. And Saul became a king like the other nations. He wasn't a king like Deuteronomy chapter 17. He was a king like the other nations. That didn't depend upon the law of God. Matter of fact, we see the culmination of Saul's kingdom, or his kingly rule, toward the very end of his rule as king, where he's literally going to a witch in Endor and getting a wisdom from a witch, dealing with witchcraft, not from the wisdom of God. That is a great reflection of Saul's kingdom. Now David steps on the scene and he has to learn this lesson of who is truly king. Are you going to be a king that has a copy of the law of God that, 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 that lives according to what I have commanded you? Are you going to be a king like Saul and the, the leaders of Israel in the past that have done whatever was right in their own eyes? Are you going to trust the plans that I have for you? Are you going to make up your own plans thinking that the Lord would just get on board? And I don't know about you, but it's a challenging thought for us as the church, for our own personal lives as believers. What plans do we have in place? What things do we think about that we want to accomplish in our lives that we don't, we're not even sure that the Lord is on board with those things? 
Are we manipulating and conniving in such a way that we're just hoping that the Lord gets on board with something that he is not orchestrating and divinely and providentially making happen? Are we seeking the Lord and his wisdom? These future plans that we might be trying to accomplish. Our desire as Christians is always to know what is the will of the Lord for me? And friend, let me tell you that if you're not walking in obedience to the Word of God and what He's commanded, you're not in the will of the Lord. And He won't bless the affairs of your hands. He will not bless the plans that you make. If you're not seeking to live according to the Word of God that He has instructed and guided us, the Lord is not a magic eight ball that you shake and flip over and and get the answers that you need. He's not a genie in a bottle. He desires this relationship with us through a covenant, as we've learned. And that that covenant is not an agreement based upon terms of both parties, but a relationship of love and loyalty and faithfulness. And so this is a great reminder for David and for us today. Who is truly king? Who is truly king of your life? Are you truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Depending upon Him and and living in such a way that your life reflects an obedience toward His commands. So David learns this lesson into verse 8. And then in verse 9, we ask the question, well, what are these promises of the covenant that David makes? What are the promises that he makes? He takes... A a detour, in a sense, the Lord does with his words to David in verse 8. We see the break is, from a grammatical perspective, he says, Now, therefore, that's a a change in direction as you're reading God's word. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Take note that the Lord has already said that twice. Thus says the Lord of hosts. The prophet would say this to make sure that you knew that what was coming was by the mouth of God. That these were not Nathan's words, these were the Lord's words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you, he says, wherever you went, and have cut uh, cut off all your enemies from before you. Verses 8 and 9 are the beginning of the promises that God makes to David. And I love the way that he starts off with these covenantal promises to David because we're reminded that these promises are based upon the grace of God. He starts in the past. Verses 8 and 9 are thinking back to the past, what the Lord has called David from. And the grace in which he applied to David's life. David was a shepherd boy. He was an unknown shepherd boy. I love the idea, the, the fact that when, when, um, when Samuel the prophet goes to the house of Jesse, as the, the Lord instructs him, and all the sons of Jesse are gathered together with, with the prophet Samuel so that he could choose a king that the Lord would choose. David's not even there. David's not even been invited. He's in the fields. He's, he's with the sheep. It's this humble, almost debased um, position as a shepherd boy. So that even as Samuel is going to come and anoint a king, and all the brothers are gathered with their father Jesse, David is nowhere to be found. But that doesn't stop the Lord. The Lord is reminding David in, in chapters uh, 7 verses 8 and 9 that he, he brought him from the pasture, from the lowest places of society, where he was following the sheep. And he took him and he rose him up and he, and he made them the prince of his people. A lowly shepherd from the lowly clan of Judah, in the lowly town of Bethlehem, raised to prominence by the Lord's power and grace, So that he would be king over all of Israel. This is the story that only the Lord would providentially script in his word. 
by His divine plan. It recounts the beauty of God's grace in all of our lives, just like David. So much so that if you jump down to in chapter 7, verse 18, David's response in the the final uh, section of this chapter is a reflection of of these words in verses 8 and 9. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for all mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. And because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. David is, for the final uh, section of chapter 7, just recounting the greatness of God in response to the grace that God had given him. Allowing him to be a king. Bringing him out of the, the muck and the mire of, of this, uh, rep, uh, this profession of being a shepherd. The lowest of the sons of Jesse. Not even having an opportunity in, in the world's and society's perspective of being anything great besides a shepherd for his entire life. And God raises him up to be a king. Can you relate to David's life? Can you understand the grace and the promise of God to to take you from death to life? Bestowing His grace upon an undeserving sinner through Jesus Christ, His true Son. Must lead us to reflect upon the beauty of God's grace and give Him praise and thanksgiving. Friend, we can get so caught up in uh, the routine of, of church and worship and, and truly be blind in our own eyes and not really know the Lord. It can become so customary in our culture that we really don't understand the grace of God because we've never truly been saved. So that His grace is not sweet to us. It's, it's not a pleasure and a joy to, to re- reflect upon and all that God has brought us from. Which means there's never thanksgiving on our lips. There's never praise to God because we don't understand how far He's brought us from by His grace and mercy. But when you understand it, you write hymns like Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You understand these words of praise and thanksgiving because of the grace that the Lord has shown you. So let me encourage you, church. Let me encourage you to be people of praise. David's promises given to him by the Lord led him to point of, of, of acknowledging the grace that he's been given and it led him to praise and it is the same for us as his people. If you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have great things to praise him about for all that he has done in your heart and life. The places that he has torn down in your own heart and he has restored and renewed something new and better and beautiful. He's taken you from a slave of sin to a son and daughter of God. You were destitute and now you are destined to be a a, a king, to rule with him as the Bible says. And a new heaven and a new earth. These promises that were made to David point forward to what he does in our hearts and lives and so we give great thanks for him. And these promises of grace are detailed specifically in verses 9 through 11. These promises that were made to David specifically. The change of Grammar from what he has done to what he will do. From a past to a future. I have been with you you, wherever you went. And have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name. Like the name of the great ones on the earth. 
Verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The summary or the the main idea of this covenant with David can be summarized in this statement. The promises of God for David who wanted to build the Lord a house is that the Lord would build David a house. It's a house for a house. It's a play on words. David wanted to build the Lord a physical structure that would honor him. But that wasn't the Lord's plan. Instead, the gracious and loving and merciful Lord instead said, no, David, my plan is to build you a house. Not one of cedar and and gold, but a dynasty, a great name. A way in which you would covenant with the Lord and, 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 and represent me as a son among the nations. As I have covenanted with your ancestors before you, I will make you a great name, as he says in verse 10 or 9 and 10, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And so the covenant that the Lord is making with David hinges upon these play on words house for a house. And in this, he, we can summarize this promise for David as, as being both a reign and a rest. He's promising him a kingdom. He's promising him a kingdom to, to be a reflection of the greater kingdom of God. A way in which he would reflect Yahweh among the nations. That he would rule people according to the word of God. And in doing so, honor the Lord. So in the same way that in our previous covenants, these, uh, these representatives were standing in the place in which they would be a blessing to the nations through the, the power and the purposes of the Lord, so David stands in the same way as the king of Israel. The earth would be blessed as David ruled according to the laws of God. Just as Deuteronomy chapter 7 tells us that the kings of Israel should do. And in doing so, they would experience fruitfulness and blessing. So the verses 9 through 11 are the promises to David that saw fulfillment in the fact that the kings who reigned over God's people came from the line of David. So this dynasty then, we begin to see play out through the rest of Israel's history in the Old Testament where the kings of Israel came from the lineage of David. And that lineage continues on so that the name of David would be great. His reign over God's people or God's kingdom extends through his sons and his grandsons and so on and so forth so that whoever bore the lineage of David were considered great men in the eyes of the people. And as the Lord established in the Torah, it was the Lord's commandment, or excuse me, the Lord's kingdom, whereby he appointed these earthly kings to rule under the Lord's greater rule and be subservient to him. But sadly, the story of Israel does not happen that way. King after king, ruler after ruler, denies the Lord, defies his word, And again, the the storyline continues to progress forward as as a future hope to something greater than even the kings of Israel could be. There was always a hope for a greater king, an obedient son, that would rule and reign over the kingdom of Israel, all of God's people. And so in chapters 7, verses 12 through 17, we see a continual um, explanation of the covenant. Look at verse 12. 
He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to a, fa- a father to him and he will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Stopping there, we see the the immediate promises to David's lineage that we know as Solomon. Solomon would come and, and Solomon would be the son that fulfills these verses, these promises here in, in our text in verses 12 through 15. He would be the son that would build the great house for the Lord, the great temple that was residing in Jerusalem. And it was a splendid building. It was a glorious, glorious feat whereby the Lord would finally have a place that was, uh, that was um, not a movable place. It was planted in the center of the promised land in the, in the city of David where he would meet with the people They would sacrifice to him and they would worship him. But it wasn't David who accomplished this for the Lord. Even though that was his plan, the Lord's plan was different. And yet God blesses David. He says, oh, your your children will be the ones who accomplish this, who will fulfill this promise. It will happen. It won't happen with you. But it will be accomplished. And so we see Solomon... Being the one who fulfills this promise. But look at verses 16 and 17. There's a lot of debate as to these passages because we know that the promise to David was greater than the earthly dynasty that follows him. In other words, the promise in verses 16 and 17 is this. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. Now, when you, you don't lightly throw around the word forever. What we're talking about here is that David is being promised that his lineage would rule and reign for eternity. All of a sudden now, The people of Israel are faced with an interpretation of one of two things. That David and the the kingdom of Israel as a nation would exist for all eternity. Or that God was going to do something through David's lineage that would have eternal perspective or eternal uh, uh, impact upon the world. And we know that the fulfillment of that isn't in earthly kings that came from David, but the earthly king, Jesus Christ, who came from the lineage of David, who was greater than David and Solomon and all the kings of Israel, so that while Solomon fulfills the building of the temple, the Lord fulfills his rule and reign over all the earthly kingdoms of the world, coming from the lineage of David. It shows us that the plans of the Lord at this point, still have to progress to under, be understood so that as, as we read them today, we understand that they are fulfilled in Christ. The New Testament writers understood that the lineage of David was important because the Messiah would come from this lineage. He would come from the tribe of Judah. He would be the one to rule this eternal kingdom forever. Which is why the promise to David's son, Solomon, that he would, the Lord would be a father to Solomon as a son and would discipline him even in his own iniquity, also foreshadows the Lord Jesus, the true son, who had no iniquity and yet represents the sonship that we have seen throughout all these covenants. That all of these people that God has called to be these representative heads of the covenant are, fo- are pointing to and fulfilled in Jesus Christ.
Therefore, the Lord, Jesus, fully God and fully man, his earthly lineage coming from the tribe of David or the tribe of Judah and the lineage of David, born in the city of Bethlehem, has incredible ramifications for our understanding of his lordship. The promises of, of these that this passage in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is fulfilled in Christ so that we know that He is truly Lord, that Jesus is the promised one to come, the Messiah, so that the words of God can be trusted, that they are faithful and true. And therefore, we can understand as we continue looking through the major and minor prophets and the promises of the Messiah all tied back to being the Son of God from the lineage of David. Called Emmanuel, which means God with us. All these things form this beautiful web or this tapestry of, of, of what God is carrying forth in His plan of redemption. So much so that I want us to, to conclude with the New Testament perspective. A summary in Hebrews chapter 1. The writer of Hebrews summarizes this perfect for us. And in doing so, quoting these Old Testament passages that point us to the fulfillment of the sonship and the, the eternal rule of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Referring to the, the names of angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or, again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels, God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, a, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. As we think about these things, we understand that the Lord Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, in the city of David, as both God and man, lived a sinless life by the power of the Holy Spirit, retained a sinless and humble state on the earth, and yet was kingly in all those ways, worshipped by the angels, honored by the Father, and yet rejected by men. He was born as the Son of God. He lived as the Son of God. And He is still the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He was tempted in every way on this earth, and yet He remained obedient to the Father so that sinners could be clothed in His righteousness. He was crucified as a criminal, although no laws were broken. He was buried in a borrowed tomb because His royalty was rejected by His friends, His family, His people. And little did the Jews know that on that cross, the son's blood was shed. And his life was given as a ransom so that the lamb's blood was applied to the doorpost and the wrath of God would pass over his people and it fell upon him. And in a final act of redemption, to show the domain of darkness has lost the battle, he triumphed over them by rising from the dead. Being the first fruits of the resurrection, and of His people who will also be raised to new life in His name. 
And many people witnessed for 40 days this resurrection and his disciples witnessed his ascension to the throne. The throne that was greater than the throne that David sat upon. It's a throne not on the earth, it's a throne over all heaven and earth. Ruled by his father's side until he returns and all of his enemies will be laid waste and put under his feet. Friends, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that are made to David. He's the fulfillment of the promises that were made to Israel, to Abraham, to David, or excuse me, to Noah and to Adam. So that we might make Christ preeminent in all things, knowing that he is the promises of all of God's plan and purposes of redemption. So that we might trust in him. So we might know that he's Lord. So we might know that his righteousness is true. That his grace is sufficient. That his power is unmatched. That his victory is everlasting. And his forgiveness is sure. And this is the Lord that we trust in. If he can culminate providentially all these things. Pointing to the birth, uh, life, death and resurrection of his son. And, a, and an eternal reign of His Son for all eternity, then we can trust Him in our weaknesses. We can trust Him for guidance and wisdom. We can submit to Him as truly Lord of all. And so I pray, as believers in Jesus Christ, that you live day to day reminded Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over the dark moments in that day. He's in dark years and, and months that you may be embattled with, with sickness and disease and hopelessness and fear. He's Lord over those things. Submit to His Lordship. And if you're an unbeliever, He is still Lord. He's still Lord over all. He's still Lord of your life. And you live day by day in rejection of the eternal King of all eternity. And you have a choice. Face the wrath and the punishment for disobeying the King or submit to Him fully with your life. Let's pray. Father, I pray their hearts and minds